Welcome to the Artifact Podcast, a podcast where we explore the history, ideas, and existential mystery behind everyday things and some not-so-everyday things. I'm Mer Simcha Panzer. And I'm Nachliel Selavan. And today we're going to be looking at a cork from Carmel Winery. This cork looks pretty ordinary to me. To the untrained eye. Ah, but your eye is trained. My eye is definitely trained, and just to make this training session easier, you have one cork, I have another, mm. and there's more where that came from. He comes prepared, but there's only one bottle of wine here. These corks come from another bottle. <laughs> okay. Now, this cork caught my eye when I was teaching a couple years ago about Jewish history, and I was teaching modern Jewish history at a school in Brooklyn, a Jewish school, Mag and David, and I was teaching uh, 10th and 12th grade, and I saw this cork over Shabbat, or as we say there, Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that I have a lesson in my hand through this very simple artifact. And I think that this is a great place to start with just what's the picture on it. So if you look carefully at the cork, and if you're uh, you know following this later on, we're going to have the images posted. This is a cork which has a picture of two men with a tunic carrying a grapevine on a stick. And it says, Yikve Carmel, Carmel Winery, since 1882. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start from the top. So the first thing we want to look at is the imagery itself. Where is this imagery from? What is the what is this imagery? What do you so see? So this image immediately reminds me of Sefer Bamidbar, the Book of Numbers, Parshat Shalach, where we have the twelve spies, one from each Shevet, not Levi who go into the land in order to check it out. And one of the things that they're supposed to do is to check out the fruits of the land. And they bring back some impressive fruits. And that's what I got. So overall, you look at this as a negative or a positive image. To me, this is a very negative image. And it's always struck me that a winery would choose to put this on their corks. Well, it's not only a winery. In fact, Israel's tourism ministry, Misrad HaTayarut, uses the same image. Because the word Latour et Haaretz, to go and scout the land, is the modern word for tourism, Tayarut, which kind of sounds like tour as well. It's kind of cool. Yeah. There's also tour winery, but that's that, another That's story. even worse. Like, at least with a winery, like, we're talking about grapes, wine. Just, just so you realize that Israel's, like, Israel's Ministry of Tourism is almost synonymous with, uh, with the uh, Secret Service. What? If you're taking the word Tayarut in this negative sense that you're taking it, which comes from the spies. Espionage. Ah, that's, that's very The funny, Ministry actually. of Espionage. That's I'm just joking. It's, it's the Ministry of Tourism. But they use the same imagery because that's the first time we hear about people who are going to look out the land. And obviously, we if we're going to look at the land. We would never tell you about our Ministry of Espionage. They're watching. <laughs> they're, you're going to have to, of course, see the wineries because you've got to come and see a wine tour. Mm, wine. And that's a word from our sponsor. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this image, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. this is an image of two people bringing the fruit of the land just to kind of understand why you think that's a negative story. It's a, I think of it as a negative story because 10 of the 12 spies spoke Lashon Hara, slandered the land. And so we wound up wandering in the desert for an additional 38 years, dying in droves. So a whole generation would die out. And the day that we were macabre, this Lashon Hara, that we you know, listened, yeah, that we accepted the slander is Tishabov. And this is the, this is the, most tragic day on the Jewish calendar. And so when I see this image, I think of Tishabav. I think of people buying into Lashon Hara. I think of fake news. I think of, I like, this is, it, it's, it's so negatively loaded to me. One thing I'll say about these grapes and fake news is those grapes were huge. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let me quiz you this before we move on. Okay. Wine reveals that which is hidden. Where is that quote from? It is in Masechet Sanhedrin, and I don't know the daf. And it's, Pechet. And it's, thank you. Pach. And it's also in Masechet Eruvin, which I happen to know because of daf Yomi. Maybe not that exact quote, but the exact idea for Sorry, sure. It's Lamed Chet, 38. Oh, see? But I could tell you the exact daf in Eruvin. I can tell you that that quote is from Aristosthenes. Oh, did he say that too? A third century Greek. Yes, he said that. But I didn't even get to say the Daphne Ravine. Go for it. Daf Samech Hey. This is very meaningful for everybody, but it locates us on the calendar because this was in the Daf Yomi a couple well, of days ago. Well, this, I mean, yesterday it was so funny because we were saying there's three ways to find out how who a person is. You get him drunk, yeah. get him to pay for something, or get him angry. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So yeah, we got that. Mm. Yeah, but let me back to our story. So I just thought okay, to present that because it's so funny that the Greek, we'll make the Greek philosophy and wine and symposium later. But so we're talking about an image here now. As it goes with wine, you have to have some subtlety and nuance, as you know when you read the 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 other side of the wine, and it goes subtle notes of cherry and blossom and all that lovely stuff. <laughs> and when you need to have some nuance and subtlety and be able to differentiate between the act of slandering the land, using the fruit, and then the fruit itself, which is in, in, indicative of the blessing of the land. I see what you're saying. You're saying that this image shouldn't be construed as negative that in a way i'm buying into lashon hara when i exactly. see this image as negative because the image itself is really not about what came out of it and the way it got slanted the image itself is really about the fruit of the land which is stupendous and okay they they take it in a negative direction but but the land is amazing and that's what comes out of this. So the thing is that we need to look at it just as an indication of the of the blessing of the land. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's take this further. So the blessing of the land, the land is fruitful. We can talk about a whole lot of other things. We can talk about what is the Carmel Winery, what is 1882, or we can talk about wine in general. Where should we go with this first? I think we should first go to Carmel Winery. Tell me a little bit about Carmel Winery in 1882. Oh, so 1882 is, this is, a, this is a, such a loaded topic. It's the first Aliyah, the first modern Aliyah. Now, the first Aliyah is itself, if we're speaking about how this image is used for propaganda, is propaganda. The concept of the first Aliyah is in itself propaganda of, I would say, modern Zionism by mm -hmm. focusing on a particular wave of immigration from Eastern Europe of people who brought with them a certain set of ideas, specifically of nationalism. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I mean, like, I get why talking about the first Aliyah, why it works with the present idea of Zionism, because you're talking about an immigration of largely secular people, from Europe. Actually, but... the first Aliyah wasn't so wasn't so secular. The second Aliyah was. That's 1904. The first Aliyah is 19 is 1882 until 1904, and then 1904 until World War One is the end of of the second Aliyah, which is sort of continued after. That's a much more. So who comes in the first Aliyah? So the first Aliyah is a lot of them are families. There many of them are, are agrarian or people who have the skills of agriculture from Eastern Europe. Okay. But these are people who are continuing a trend which began almost 100 years ago at the end of the 18th century. Ah, so that's my question. Why would we call it propaganda? What's distorted well, exactly. in that story? Exactly. So we, well, let's, just, let's just put it this way. Okay. We've had people coming into Israel from the time of the students of the Baal Shem Tov in the late 18th century and the Gra, right? The Gaon of Vilna. And they were setting little land and buying property. And gradually you had people bringing in different, like the Templars, you know, the Germans. They brought in relatively primitive techniques for agriculture and viticulture. And they also exported grape. Oh, the uh, Templars are like 13th century, aren't grape. they? No, but I'm saying they, they, brought, they, they brought that in. And then later on, mm -hmm. in the late stage of the Ottoman period, we had a bit of a revival of ag agriculture and citriculture as well, like Jaffa oranges. Ah, right? okay, We're talking okay. about like 1840, okay. 1820. But that had to do with bringing in certain kinds of European technologies for irrigation, which enabled you to produce citriculture. Ah, you're saying ordinarily you wouldn't be able to produce citrus fruit unless right. you have these other technologies. Right. And so, so all okay. these things, so it started happening gradually. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, and this is going to connect us to the Carmel Winery in, in just a bit. Okay. Because the two biggest Jewish philanthropists of Europe, who would you name them? Uh, Rothschild and Montefiore. Exactly. Hey! Ding, ding, five points to Gryffindor. Um, I'm a Ravenclaw, but I must concede. So, well, no, I'm a Hufflepuff. I'm a Hufflepuff. Are you? I did the test. I don't know about this. The hat is sorted out. I've done the sorting test. And my Patronus is a beagle. <laughs> so, Montefiore and Rothschild are both giving patronage to Jewish schools that will have, like, the Alliance Israelite, or we have Kol Chavarim. We have different schools which are providing what's called uh, Western culture, which was actually considered to be totally fine by the majority of the Jewish population in Israel, which is Sephardic. The mm -hmm. Ashkenazic Society of Israel, which had let's just say, took issue with the Enlightenment and all that stuff. So they they actually rejected that, but the Sephardites were like totally fine with that. Like, yeah, we need to be enlightened. There were, there were about 60,000 Jews who came from Morocco, Algeria, Bukhara. Some of them were very wealthy Jews. So we had a lot of that going on. Wait, wait when did they come? They're coming in the early 19th century, late okay. 18th century. We like, That's when it's happening. And you also have Temanim who came at that time. The, so yeah, the Yemenites came Yemen. in yeah. 1882. 
And it just 1882. They so get, why 1882? Because they had some gematria from Pasuk and Shirasharim. Very good. Amarti, I don't know how to say it in the Yemenite way. Amarti e'ale betamar. Betamar is the letters Tafresh Membet, which is the Hebrew numeral for 1882. So they said the Aliyah should be in Betamar. E'ale betamar. I will ascend on 1882. And so on mass, we had about 10,000 Yemenite Jews who came by foot. True into Israel, and they settled, a lot of them settled in the Silwan, what's known mm-hmm. today as City of David, in or, that area. Or in the Kid, Silwan. In the, or Silwan, in the Kidron Valley. I have so, Arab friends who won't set foot in Silwan. They hold that that neighborhood is so dangerous. I've been there many times, but it's... I, I wouldn't walk there at night. Yeah. Not because the Yemenites. The Yemenites got kicked out in 48, basically, mm-hmm. in the War for Independence. They went fleeing, and now everybody thinks of this as, like, oh, the Arabs have lived here for thousands and thousands of years. And guess what? This was a Yemenite neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, Arabs were living there too. Uh, saying, yeah, sure. People were coming into the land of Israel in order to work in agriculture. But then again, it was relatively primitive. When I lived on Chel Nashim, okay. uh, near where Nani lives, mm-hmm. I used to daven in this small Yemenite shul there. Wonderful, wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there you know, chatting with one of the older guys there. We're waiting for a 10th man. So somebody goes out and grabs somebody off the street. Who's he grab? He grabs this ancient Ashkenazi guy. Who's like the Rav at a local Ashkenazi shul? Mm-hmm. He's a Breslev Chassid. Okay. There's an old, old Breslev community there. And he brings him in and he looks at the, the older guy I was speaking with and he says, Oh, I remember your mother. What? Like that, that's how old this Ashkenazi guy is. Oh like the goodness. guy I'm talking to is already an older gentleman. Okay. And this guy's, I remember your mother. That's funny. Like, and then he goes on and he says, Your mother could speak with everybody in their language. She spoke with Arabs in perfect Arabic, like from the Quran. She spoke with the Ashkenazim in perfect Yiddish. My parents and her, they used to carry on conversations in Yiddish. She spoke Yiddish like a, like a chassid. <laughs> we were talking about the Ali of the Yemenites and Silwan. And anyway, we're on right, a digression. So 1882, we had about, about 10,000 immigrants from Yemen and about 30,000 immigrants from Eastern Europe. Many of them were like Chobavet Zion, were like early national Zionist movements. Now, the reason that we cut off 1882, even though the population of of the Jews in Israel at that time was about 55,000, and before World War I was about 80,000. In other words, the, there was an exponential growth in population. A lot of it's because of the living conditions and the security and sanitation, which made it just more livable. Mm. More and more Jews started coming, whereas beforehand there was so much disease. I mean, when Mark Twain came to Israel, it was a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is horrible to read his description of people's disease and poverty, and it's awful. And the desolation of the land. It's awful. So, so, it started, so the agriculture was happening, and we were exporting, uh, using a lot of olive oil, which is used also for making soap a lot. Really? Which actually connects to the story of the, the rivalries between the different uh, er, local Arab families. You know, Ibrahim pa- Pasha came in and sort of co- stopped that, and, but he was kicked out in 1840. Anyway, I'm getting into other yeah, yeah, territory. Yeah, going down some rabbit but, hole but, there. but the point is that wine was sort of part of that. Now, Rothschild and Montefiore we were already financing schools which were giving people education and professions in these fields, which people in Europe realized these are important professions to have. We okay. need to revive the country. Okay. But the people who were, who were in Israel at the time were there out of a religious connection to the mm-hmm. land. You're talking about the old Yeshuv. Right. This is the old Yeshuv. And 1882 is the quote-unquote, air quotes, new Yeshuv. These are people who are coming mm. with a mission to make Israel... Uh, Great again? <laughs> In a bigly way. In a, in a hugely uh, bigly way. The, the, to make Israel the center point of the Jewish nation. This is part of nationalism, which was what's going mm-hmm. on mostly mm-hmm. in Eastern, but this is happening in Europe mm-hmm. in the 18th, 19th, 19th century. Secular nationalism. Secular nationalism. Some of these people were religious, but their uh, connections to the... If you read their writings, they don't talk about religious ideas at all. They talk about the land of Israel. But what's very interesting, and this is going to connect us to the winery now, hmm. is that their connection to Israel is biblical, historical, geographical. In other yeah, words, I'm going to say, like, it's, you could call it secular nationalism. But, but they're using a biblical eight, image. Yeah, 1882, and they're putting a biblical image on their so court. What is the what is the Carmel winery? Not to mention Carmel is a biblical name. The word Carmel is, there's two areas in Israel called the Carmel. One is in the Judean desert, where King David, you know, he meets Navala Carmeli, and he marries his wife Abigail after he gets killed, that whole 
story, but Carmel is also in the north. And we have Eliyahu and Hara Carmel. The Carmel, it's in the north. Carmel also just means some of the best part of the land. It's called the Carmel. And so this winery, which was started off actually in Zichron Yaakov, was funded by Edmund de Rothschild. And it was hmm. the first Aliyah people who said, we want your support in reviving the land. He said, I'm getting personally involved hmm. uh, instead of just writing a check. Like, so he was involved in this and you're bringing French viticulture and it became one of the larger exporters in the Middle East of really? wine. And most of the wine they produce is table wine is it's like sweet wine and whatever. They didn't get into the fancier wines, but they're one of the first, they're, they're basically the first Aliyah. The first Aliyah were coming to turn Israel into a modern country. It's part of the revival of the Jewish nation. It's the new Yishuv. It's nationalism. It's not just, we're here for religious purposes and we have to make a living. So you're telling me that when I'm looking at this cork, I'm looking at a date that marks the first Aliyah. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at a winery that marks the personal involvement of Rothschild mm -hmm. in the agriculture of Eretz Israel. I'm looking at an image which very curiously is a biblical image, which was used by the quote-unquote secular nationalists in order to mark their winery. Wait, have they used this image all along, or is this like a past as twenty years? As far as I know, I've seen some very old bottles. Of it goes them. back. I've seen some very old bottles. Yeah, I so, can't tell you one hundred percent. I actually reached out to them to ask them, and hmm. they didn't answer. I sent them an email, but I've been looking into it. But I've seen some of their very old bottles, like cognac bottles, like old stuff that I saw at, at the Grape Man in Yafo, Jaffa, uh, just about a month ago. To me, it's a fascinating thing that we have quote-unquote secular people who are connected to the Torah in a very real way. But what's amazing is, is, is that at the time, especially in the third Aliyah, which is, so it's not really fair to say at the time, the third Aliyah was extremely secular to the point of being anti-religious. What's the third Aliyah? When's the that? third Aliyah is after World War One ends. So it's 1917 until I think, uh, 1919, I think until 1923. Uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly the cutoff is. There's a reason for the cutoff. Okay. Okay. One of them is World War II. There's, there's different stories that are going on, but there's All a reason right. for it. The Great Depression, okay. whatever. I don't remember exactly, but Something 1923. Something the Ottoman Empire? Or... It, it, things, we have the British Mandate is immediately, the Third Aliyah oh, is already okay. the British okay. Mandate. Okay. Yeah. The Second and Third Aliyah are considered a continuum, which is just interrupted. My great-grandfather came from Ukraine in the Third Aliyah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Third Aliyah was the, what are called the Chalutzim, the pioneers who built the infrastructure of the land. They brought the kibbutzim. They brought in socialism. This is after the revolution in Russia, mm -hmm. right? So they're very idealistic mm -hmm. and they're very secular. Uh, they're secular to the point of anti-religion to an extreme that we don't really see so often today because their descendants have sort of relaxed. And I think that the melting pot of Israel has created a new dynamic mm. in which things are gradually coming together in a way mm. now that transcends definitions. Mm -hmm. But that that kind of secularism, I feel like that's in the mental space of how Israelis think about what people think. I feel like that's still a, a live There's a conjugation of dot, which like, is used, doc, dot seen in the sense of doctrine, hadata, mm -hmm. indoctrination. It's a mm -hmm. negative word in Israel. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't want you to push your religion on me. It's hadata. Mm -hmm. Culturally, I'm willing to have a conversation. Well, there, there's another fascinating thing in, in how people use the word ideologia, ideology. Because for me, coming from America with whatever weird background I have, ideology is a negatively loaded word. If you have an ideology, you're... He's an ideologue. Yeah, you, you have some idea that's more important to you than reality. Whereas here, you know, people would be like, oh yeah, he has an ideology. It's like... He, he, he's he, idealist. He's, yeah, it, it's no. That's it, a, it's, it's in the positive way. With the least, he's an yeah, ideologue. Yeah. Ideology is like he has ideals. He he has values. He stands for something. That to me was an utter shock when I heard Israelis using ideology that way. It was it was telling that they they weren't saying idealist. Yeah. They were saying ideology. He has an ideology. Yeah, I hear that because usually an ideologue means a person whose ideas are so transparent that the person really has no opinion. In other words, I know everything they have to say because they're an ideologue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? There's no there's no thinking. I could write down what this person thinks and feels on a piece of paper right, because they subscribe to a doctrine. Right. Let me see if I could take this in another direction. This image of the spies carrying these giant grapes pops up in 
Ministry of Tourism? A decent number of places. It's it's on the corks of Carmel Winery. It's the Ministry of Tourism. I, I think it shows up somewhere else as well. Yeah, there's, there are trucks where I see it on the doors. Is that also Carmel or is that something else? It's also in somewhere else. It does show up in somewhere. It does show up somewhere else. Yeah, because it's not drawn like this. So I think it's a it's a different uh, company. Of the some thing sort. is, so so many so, many many of the people in the first Aliyah, the immigrants in the first Aliyah, were very aware of the biblical connection, and so a lot of them used these names. Even the first settlement called Em Hamoshavot, right? It's mm-hmm. called Petach Tikva. Mm-hmm. I mean Rosh Pina. We have Rosh Pina. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but then we have like Petach Tikva. Why mm-hmm. is Petach Tikva called Petach Tikva? Because Emek Achor LePetach Tikva, as Yeshayahu says, Isaiah, he says, "I'm going to give the the barren and bereft valley, and I'm going to turn it into an opening of hope." Petach Tikva, mm-hmm. right? And Evan Masu Abonim Haytale Rosh Pina. Rosh Pina. Right. So there's an awareness of verses of Psukim, mm-hmm. and I just want to point mm-hmm. out that in generally speaking, in the wineries in Israel. There is a tremendous awareness of the connection to, to the land, to the geography, and to the verses in the choices given to wineries and particular wines. And that's especially in the more accelerated process of wineries in Israel right now, which are very, very successful. I mean, they're winning gold medals against century-old French wineries now. You know, mm. There's a Shiloh winery wine that just got a 96 on the Wine Spectator. I mean, that's a huge deal, 95s and 96. I don't remember exactly which one, hmm. right? So there's a lot of that going on. But let's just you get an idea of connections, right? We can talk about just names. Yeah, yeah give me some winery names because it struck me that the, the names are very connected to land. More wine? Yes, please. What do you call a, a typical winery in the States? Give me one from California, I don't know. I'm a total Amaretz when it comes to wine. This is Napa Valley. Yeah, Napa Valley. Usually it's named for like the place where it's located, right? So what's the place? what's the place here? Ah, well, here it'd be like Golan. So we have Golan Heights Winery. We have uh, Yarden. Okay, that's named after the Jordan, that's named after the Golan. Right. Well, okay, so, so that on the Dalton one hand is, is geographic, and because right. our geographical names are biblical, but, but so let's it's also it biblical. Further. But so like, we have yeah, what else? Shiloh Winery. Now, Shiloh Winery's hmm. imagery is a bull, which is related to the biblical tribe of Joseph whose portion Shiloh is subsumed within. Whoa. So we have Shiloh and Bull. That's and even subtle. the different lines of wine that Ami Luri of Shiloh Winery puts out are, let's say, Choni. Choni HaMagel. Choni the circle maker. Wow. Where he has secret reserve. He has secret. Oh, now, that's funny. Now, taking us back to that quote from Sanhedrin or Aristosthenes, Nichnasi Ayin Sod. Right? Wine reveals that which is hidden. That's secret. The word secret is turned into intertwined in the vine, which means a vineyard made of the word sod with an image of the tabernacle of the vineyard with the scapegoat, the Seir Mishalach, going out with a red string on its horn. It's just kind of cool how you see that. Wow. But you have all of that imagery related to the wine. Hmm. So that's just one example. Uh, we have Hebron, Hebron Hills, Hebron Winery. Yeah. They have Isaac's Ram. The bottle goes for about 30, 40 bucks. Now, okay. Isaac's Ram isn't happening in Hebron, but it's a connection to Avraham and Hebron, Isaac's Ram, that name. It's a biblical name. It's a biblical place. That's kind of cool. We have mm-hmm. uh, Hebron Heights have a wine called Elonei Mamre. Oh, wow. That's that's right out Elonei of Mamre the description. Hebron. It's like Abraham you're reading the verses about Avraham Avinu. Right. You have wow. Gush Etzion has the Lone Oak, which is more modern history. It has to do with, with the battles on Gush Etzion, yeah. Alonshvur at the Lone Oak. But we have, let's say, Har Bracha Winery. What is Har Bracha? Well, when we come into the land, we're supposed to perform a ceremony when we stand in Shechem, and you have the blessing on, on Har Gerizim and the curse on Har Eval. Hmm. This is a Jewish town, which is right next to Har Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, so it's called Har Bracha. Wow. Isn't that cool? Wow. We, we have Jerusalem. So it, yeah. it would be very easy for those places to just take geographic names for the wineries or for the vineyards, but instead they're taking biblical references to those places. There's a connection. There's a story. Yeah. To, the wine has a story to tell. But they aren't saying, yes, if I were in California, I'd just call myself, you know, Hebron Hill Winery. But instead, I'm going to name this particular wine or this particular, whatever it is, I'm going to name it in a way that highlights my connection to the land Dafka through the Torah. Yes. And this is done by many wineries which are not necessarily religious. Mm-hmm. 
right? Because the point is there's an awareness of the land regardless. Because mm-hmm. there's a story to tell here, and people feel they're living the story. I mean, I actually heard like... But you say there's an awareness of the land, but the point is that the awareness of the land entails the story of our people going back into the Torah. I mean, that's the only place that... That's the story. And without that story, then you can say your wine is good, and it is good, but why would I pay more for, let's say, I don't know, a kosher wine than for the, the for a nice bottle of Cabernet for five or eight bucks in Argentina? Mm-hmm. Like, why would I spend double that? Because there's all these kashrut issues around the production of wine, making it kosher, etc. So it makes it complicated, right? But there's a story to tell here. And the story is what we want. We want. And the story actually has stories themselves. The concept of story has a lot to do with wine. Story and, and wine? Story and wine. What well, what makes this Hayotzer Allegro Cabernet Sauvignon 2019 different than an Hayotzer Cabernet Sauvignon 2018? Why are they not the same? Let's say I wait a year before I open the 2019. Okay. I open them two years after, right? Because 2019 means you just open it now, mm-hmm. obviously. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the harvest of 2019. Why would that make a difference? What year it's from? Why would a why would a serious uh, ah because you say ah sommelier say this is a twenty seventeen? Is it because it's three years old or because there's something about that year I that's different say, than this uh, year? Twenty nineteen, it was a very good year. What does that mean? I have an association with that year. What is it about that year that makes that year good? It's Cabernet Sauvignon. A cab, a cab is a cab is a cab. The, 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 the truth is when. when when I when I've heard that in the past, I've always thought it was a very good year. Like it was a very good year for the grape harvest or you know whatever it was so what that, does that mean but but no like it's a comment about the nature of that year like that was a good year for can us. you say that about apples ah because of the preservation you're saying what is it about wine is yeah. it just the process well the wine is it the pro- look it's like it's like the rings in a tree you you cut open a tree every and you ring see the lines you see the that's rings and, and you can tell me something about i could tell you something about the rainfall in that particular year if i even have if a there was wine, a volcanic eruption that year right there also there's all amazing information right right so if i if i'm tasting a wine i'm tasting a record of that year exactly mm. that is a story mm. ah that's beautiful that's beautiful the, the, the product itself, obviously, it needs to be produced properly. We need to be able to draw the story out of it properly. You have to have a good storyteller, a good winemaker. Hmm. That's very nice. A good storyteller is a good winemaker. Wow. That is good. But that, because sometimes you make blends or whatever it is, you have to bring, but each wine is distinct because the chemical makeup of the grape has so many factors that contribute to it which can't be replicated unless you really want to have a controlled environment if such a thing were possible. That's one of the, the amazing things about culinary arts to me, that it has it's similar to music and to dance in that it's, it's temporal. And even if you have a recording or you have a video of the ballet, whatever it is, it's, it's merely recording. There's something about this artistic artifact that is it's so linked and it's embedded in time you it's can like only experience that perf- it that like way that, that class moment. that i gave if only i would have recorded that class it was so good you gave that class 30 times yeah but that one was a really good one wow you have that right like i gave a really really good class you 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 kind you, you kind of get that okay right? i hear but like here we're talking about chemical composition and how it's changing from you know, week to week as you, as the wine matures and, and how it varies from year to year. I, I don't know. It speaks to me much more than like, okay, I gave a particularly good share, but, okay. but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So the point is that wine, wine is unique. Wine tells a story. Wine is special. And the wine tells, you can't detach it from the story of where the wine was made. And what is the significance of having wine in this region at all? Like, why does that matter? The whole issue of uh, having the revival of the agriculture in Israel alongside the extreme exponential population growth and the growth of infrastructure and the whole thing that's going on in Israel in terms of our identity here, you know, culturally, religiously, politically, societally, like all that stuff that's going on now is a very special story. This is, this is part of that story. 
Perhaps one of the most important things about wine, this I heard from, from uh, Yoram Cohen, who has Tanya Winery. He lives in Malilivona. His winery is considered a, a very, very unique winery. He has certain bottles that go for, I don't know, 20,000 shekels. I don't know. He's, got, like, he's got some wow. very, very special lines of winery. And he also is a gourmet chef. He grows these black tomatoes. In his, uh, his, oh, his I've house. heard of him. Yeah, he's a great guy. My sister went to school with one of his daughters. So this guy basically says... I feel like those prophetic verses about the revival of Judea and Samaria expressed in wine in the prophecies of Jeremiah, of Jeremiah, that's talking about me. Because these verses, which you actually read in Rosh Hashanah and the Haftarah, but this is Jeremiah who's saying, You will come back and plant vineyards in the hills of Samaria. After the destruction of the ten tribes, whose capital was in Samaria, and the mm -hmm. Samaria is the general region, mm -hmm. the utter devastation, and then the dispersion, and the diaspora, and the, the thousands of years of, of suffering and not being able to actually be in our land, when Yermiao tells you that you will come back and plant hill, vineyards in the hills of Samaria, that's a prophecy. It's like, and Samaria wineries are, are, are winning gold medals. We are seeing a prophecy. We are seeing a, a, a rebirth. So there's so much importance to the story. And if you don't tell that story, then, then okay, fine. It's good wine. There's a lot of good wines out there. This wine has an incredible, unique story. Hmm. I want to think about the centrality of grapes and wine in human culture. Mm -hmm. Because we've been talking about it in terms of the culture and history and story of our nation. Mm -hmm. from the perspective of the development of modern Israel, Israel, Israel. <laughs> and now from the, the, the perspective of the, the fulfillment of, of this prophecy from Yermiao. There's, there's, there's more than that. There, there's much more than that. But, but let's look at it more broadly, because I, I want to think about, I want to go back to the, the idea of wine as this art form linked into, that's embedded in time and think about the nature of wine. What is wine? Like, Ooh. what are grapes for people? And a, a few of the things that occur to me offhand is, well, wine is a very primal example of, of preservation. Right? So preserving food is a very, very important thing. We have... And alcohol is a big part of it. Alcohol is a big part of it. Salt's a big part of it. There's a beautiful book about salt. I, I, lent, I lent the book... <laughs> You lent the book to, yes. to Moshe David, and I, yeah. <laughs> salt we, can be an entire... It's funny that that book has like We can definitely do something about funny. salt. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get to salt at some point. But then one, one very interesting aspect of the, the universal story, or almost universal story of wine, in connection with us, is that this isn't just something that ties into our particular religious culture. Wine is a, like, spiritual substance, Right, so we can look at like if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong. Hathor is the Egyptian god of wine. Hathor is you're talking about Dionysus is the Greek yeah, god Greek. of wine yeah. and theater. Uh, I don't know of any goddess of wine in ancient Egypt, but wine in ancient Hathor, 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 the golden cow of creation. She's the goddess of love and fertility. Okay, uh, related a lot to the golden calf. So maybe you can sort of tie that in. Okay, okay. Uh, but, but, but wine the Egyptians in ancient, certainly in had ancient wine. Egypt, they had wine, but wine was very hard to grow. It was imported mostly. Interesting. Uh, like many things in Egypt, like wood. A lot of things they didn't grow okay. locally, they imported. Okay. Wine was used for libations, for sacrament. Ah, okay, so it's a sacrament for them. Because it's so rare. Hmm. That's interesting that they, they would import something for a sacrament. It was, it was used for the rich. But it was because it was such an uh, an elevated substance, it can only be used for the kings and for sacrament. It's only later on, I think during the Persian period, we're talking about Cyrus the Great, that Persian period, okay. in which the multiculturalism, but also the international trade reached a level where the production of wine was able to be distributed and, the, and available to the common people. In Egypt. In the world. In the world, okay. Thanks to, I think it was the Persian Empire, because before that we have many records. I mean, wine was probably created like 9,000 years ago as far as we know. We don't really know exactly where it started, but there's mm -hmm. hints to it probably having been in existence in the Zagros Mountains in ancient Iran about 9,000 years ago. But wine, fermentation, 
as preservation mm-hmm. of because once you have alcohol, I mean, you get rid of the germs, so things don't spoil. Mm-hmm. So beer and wine, you know, salting things as well, as we mm-hmm. mentioned, mm-hmm. preserving foods and drinks. But wine was very different. Mm-hmm. Wine was very different. In contrast with what we have with salt, wine is psychoactive. It's psychotropic. Wine will... I mean, why it would wine, your brain. Yeah, why would wine be linked so much to these things that have to do with religion or spirituality or consciousness or however we want to describe it exactly? Who is it, Richard but Dawkins? It's, it's a drug. It's who is it, Richard Dawkins, who said if it's one person, it's insanity. If it's enough people, it's a religion. The fact that people associate intoxication and getting high and being crazy and that with religion tells you that this is very, very. Uh, deep-rooted, I f- where people I feel assume like, yeah. that religion has to do with being intoxicated and crazy and drunk or a high, like, not sane. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that because wine helps you elevate your mind to a new level, like yesterday in Dafiomi, we were talking about how some people can't even give a class until they've had wine to drink because right, it Rav opens Nachman. up your creativity. Yeah. Right, you can make connections that when we're so stuck and rigid, we can't make. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we're not allowed to be intoxicated when going into the temple. Right, and there are other rabbis right on that daf who hold that you are not allowed to teach after you've had any amount of wine. So which is it? And that's the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword. I'm going to just pull up the source here, but it's a beautiful source. It's in Yuma, daf ein vav. It's seventy-six. That says the word tirosh, of dagan v'tirosh, and the blessings of, of Yitzchak to his children, to Esav and Yaakov. What is tirosh? Now, tirosh is something we generally look at as a general term for wine, right? We even have tirosh winery, yeah? Mm-hmm. But tirosh has a word in it, rosh. Now, what does rosh sound like? Head. But also, what is rash? Rash. Oh, rash is like uh, poor. Poor, poor right. person. So, zacha, so it says nasa rosh. Lo zacha, nasa rash. So, if uh-huh. you merit the, the drink appropriately, it makes you a uh, head. Tier, if not, it turns you hash, into yeah. poor. In other words, you oh, become so okay. poor. And it, oh, that's beautiful. Right. So it's a beautiful thing. It's In other words, wine has the ability to elevate us, but it has also the ability to turn you to a drunkard mm-hmm. and to embarrass a person. Right. And so there's many, many examples of this, of course. You know, because Homer says, no poem was ever written by a drinker of water. Hmm. Right. You, you need to drink wine. And the, the, the Greeks were famous for this. I mean, they invented an entire ceremony around the drinking of wine, which was there as the cultural lens of how cultural are you? How do you, what do you do when you drink? And yeah, how do you mix... Greeks some crazy drinking I games. Mean, the, the, but the mixing of water and wine, consider like yin and yang, like how much good and bad do you have together and those mm-hmm. measures. And what do you do when you're drunk? Mm-hmm. You know, like you have the entire, uh, what was it, uh, Aristotle's uh, symposium. No, Plato. Plato, about Aristotle. Symposium, meaning literally getting drunk together. Yeah, in symposium. Right? Yeah, sim together. Yeah, 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 of course. And that's that's when all the interesting stuff happens. Unlike in the Persian period, where according to the Megillah, we you know the story is once everybody gets drunk. Actually, in the Persian period, the Achaemenid Persians, which is like Cyrus the Great, you mm-hmm. know, Achashverosh, Xerxes, and all those guys, Artaxerxes, Darius, they would legislate when they were drunk. What? And then when they would sober up, they'd go over all of their legislation and say, okay, this is good, this isn't good. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Because that daf of Gemara that we were talking about before, where Rav Nachman said that he has to drink before he can think straight. Right. The, the introduction to that is like, you can't give psak halacha, you can't legislate, essentially, after you've had any amount of wine. So here they had a, kind wow. of a middle ground. Like, because when you're drunk, you're going to come up with some crazy stuff. Wow. Now when you're sober, go back and review it and uh, see like, hey, that was genius. Uh, but this, no, this, you can't publish this. <laughs> this is not going to happen. That's crazy. It, it's an incredible night. Like, wine really plays an incredible role in so many different cultures and so many different ways. I want to mention uh, Brian uh, Mora Rescue's book. Okay. Uh, he was just on Joe Rogan. That situates us oh, again in time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he was connecting it to the development of, uh, of Christianity, even. Hmm. So the, the, the idea the of the Eucharist, and, and yeah. right, again, wine is a sacrament. It's not just Greeks. It's but, not, but even, even like my father mm-hmm. growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. said that wine was always considered to be something that, that's for sacrament. You don't, wine isn't something that you enjoy. Because the kosher wine industry didn't mm-hmm. exist. I remember, I remember when wine turned into a thing in America that people would drink as if it were 
like not as if it were beer because it had a kind of aura about it. But people didn't drink wine when I was a kid. Wine became a thing in the very late 90s, early 2000s. And that's when people in America started to drink wine as like, this is what I drink, as opposed to vodka or beer or whatever. That's so interesting because, you know, I mean, not prohibition aside, in the prohibition period in America, when wine was forbidden, alcohol was forbidden. That was a long time before. Yeah, a long time before. But not you, that old, man. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, they say that summer about 1969. But there was a period in which drinking alcohol, drinking and driving in general, wasn't considered to be, you know, problematic. Drinking wine was actually, for, throughout a lot of history, actually, was safer than drinking water. Now, people didn't mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. why. Right, right, right. But they knew that it was safer than drinking water because you couldn't get rid of all the you know dangerous things that you could have may, have, may have found in water. Right. But alcohol gets rid of stuff. So yeah. so wine was considered to be something that's healthier to drink, and mm-hmm. even for med- medicinal purposes. Yeah. I mean, most of the medicines, there's a, a whole Greek treatise about this. Right, right. Where you, know, you have thousands of recipes, thousands of different medications, which are, for the most part, based on wine. They didn't know why, it just, it worked. Right. But that's talking about how wine would work on all different parts of your body or how it would be a, like a substrate for, for different medications. But I want to focus specifically on the, the psychoactive part of it. Okay. Wine in connection with uh, mourning. Like wine wasn't created except for, for mourners. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, I where's mean, that you know what we, I, I don't remember, but we do say that right, in, in right. Psalms, like wine gladdens the heart. It's like, give us wine to forget our pain because wine helps you forget, right? It gladdens. Are you saying it's like strategic forgetting? It's just, yeah, like you just loosen up. Can we connect that to the idea of nechama? Yeah, because nechama means changing of mind. Mm-hmm. So this is changing of mind in a very artificial way because you're dependent on the wine as opposed to actually changing your brain. But then again, that goes into all of the psychotropics. I mean, you're using something well, external to change there, your there mind. Is, there is definitely an advantage to a hallucinogenic experience. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Once you've had such an experience, you can go back to regular life and sort of reflect on things. Mm. It's a much harder way to through mindfulness, meditation, and hard work to get to the point where I'm capable of freeing myself from the constraints of the here and now. Mm-hmm. You're saying that, you know, you want to, you want real change, break out the heavy tools and go for the, go for a psilocybin or... That could give you an opening so that you have a point of reference to what it could look like to be free. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to be free unless you put in the work. I guess when... If I can go back to how I thought about the world in high school, I wanted to free myself of dependencies on external things. And so I would look at, I did look at drugs and, and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, wine included, as a limitation on freedom. But I think that the, the deeper point that I was missing, and this gets us into Noah, is that, no, 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 your opposition between what's internal to you and what's external to you is already a false opposition. So Noah comes along, he comes out of the Teva, out of the Ark, and... And he gets drunk. He gets drunk. But that getting drunk isn't... Um, it's not a, a foolish getting drunk. It's, it's a, a very, very mindful getting Mindful, drunk. conscientious getting drunk, saying, listen, I watched humanity go astray because everybody had their ideologies. Everybody had their ideas about what should be or what I deserve or whatever the case may be. And now I'm saying, let's get back to our roots in the earth. Let me show you how earthy you are. Take this thing that grew out of the earth, put it into your body, and now you'll discover that your great mind that you thought was so separate is actually deeply affected by this piece of dirt that you just put into your body. As free as we want to be, the earth has a lot of control over us. The chemistry and the unique interrelationship between the chemistry, the molecular structure and our neurons can completely cripple us of everything that we thought makes us unique. Hmm. Like, like, like you can think that we are, we are so free and so smart and so intellectual. In the words of, of Robin Williams, after four or five, six, maybe eight drinks, you know, you can be a professor who's written several books, and suddenly you're going like, ah, la, 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 like you're speaking fluent drunkenese. Hmm. It's like the wine shows you how dependent you are on the earth, right? You can't get a machine drunk. 
Actually, unless you've read iRobot. Well, <laughs> iRobot. Have you read iRobot, Isaac Asimov? I, I have, I've read some of so, Isaac so, Asimov. I, so, I, so they made a movie with Will Smith, which is a beautiful movie, but it really is only loosely connected to the book. Long story short, there's these two guys who are always on these outposts of wherever it is in the solar system, and they're always dealing with robots that something goes wrong. In one case, a robot, through whatever the mechanisms are, goes through the equivalent of being drunk. And they're mm. completely dependent on this robot for survival. They're stuck in, in crazy conditions. And the robot malfunctions and those three rules which were hardwired into the robot in order to make sure that no harm would be, befall a human. Uh -huh. They're now in danger because the robot is drunk. drunk. Oh, and they crazy. have to figure out, there's another section where the robots become religious. It's really funny. Like they tried to actually prove to the robot that humans created it. Oh, and wow. it cannot accept that reality because it is so religiously programmed to believe that robots are superior to humans. You could have never evolved from that stupid thing, which can't even process food without without disposing of 90% of the energy that it gets. It's so uh, inefficient, it couldn't be. It's fascinating. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, argument. yeah. So machines getting drunk, that is science fiction. Hmm. Right, but human beings are susceptible, are vulnerable, and wine brings out our vulnerability. Our vulnerability, our connection to the land, the connection between Adam and Adama. We, we, we become the, vulnerable when we drink wine, right? You open up. That's a drinking drinking with somebody. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You're saying that, yeah, this dichotomy between, on the one hand, your uh, uniqueness, on the and on the other hand, the the extent to which you are a part of the earth, mm -hmm. that those two opposite things come together in vulnerability. In our vulnerability, we see both our uniqueness, what we're capable of, what's special in us. And then on the other hand, right. also the, I mean, the, the it's, it's our like, substrate. It's like, for example, why is it that eating is a part of covenant in so many places, like Yaakov and Lavan are enemies, right? Mm -hmm. So what do they do before they decide not to ever see each other again? Right, they make their heap of stones they and they eat, eat a meal there, yeah. What is that all about? Mm -hmm. You have a meal with somebody. Right, you have also a at Harsinai, meeting. at Harsinai too. We sit and they eat, right? Right. Or for example, we go to the temple and we have a, an altar mizbech and we bring food and we sort of let God eat mm -hmm. and then we eat part of the, what's mm -hmm. eat, what is this all about? Oh, spe specifically with the Pesach too, which is so deeply connected I mean, to Shlamim in general, which we're supposed mm -hmm. to rejoice, the reason it's called Shlamim, one of the reasons is because of Shalom, because of Shlemut, because we have, um, we have everybody takes part in it. The, the God gets a part, human, human beings get a part, and Kohanim also get a part of it. And so we have Shlemut, we have wholesomeness. Mm. Right? What is this? The, the most common denominator that we have between all humans is our basal evolutionary needs. Everybody needs to eat. Mm. That's something we can all agree on. That's something that we share. We may not share other things, but we all share the need to eat. Ah. So on a very deep level, the, the most generic thing is going to be linked to what is most unique in us, potentially. How so? Because I mean, here we're saying we can even even each go our separate ways, but we are having respect for that which is we have in common. And what I'm trying to say here is that wine is an equalizer. Yes, and then what I'm trying to say is that against that background of equalization, Right. If you're like Rav Nachman and you're able to open up your creative capacity and you're able to open up your creative capacities through wine. That brings out your uniqueness. That brings out your How uniqueness. How do you hold your liquor? What do you do when you're Oh, that's you're funny. Drunk? That's a very idiosyncratic thing. But that's in, that's what what in a sense Purim is about. Oh man. Okay, hold on, hold on. I feel like we've maxed out the ending of this podcast okay. like 10 times already, okay? And you have a highly associative mind 
and it's going to be hard for us to See, end our when, episodes when I drink because wine, we could just keep that's going. That's what happens. But, Maybe next time we'll do it on salt, and then my mind will shrink, <laughs> shrivel up. So let's preserve this for posterity. Do you want to do you want to leave us with a, a closing idea? I will say one closing idea is that the entire history of the world is compared to wine, in which we are told at the end of, of Brachot, of Gemara Brachot, Tractate Brachot, is that the final product, which is presented to the righteous at the end of time, Tzadikim Latid Lavo, is Yain HaMeshuma Uva. Yain HaMeshuma so we say like that concept of a utopian feast at the end of days in which you're going to have that preserved wine. The whole point of the preserved wine is that the entire history of the universe of humanity is manifest, is, is detectable in that wine which we will have because no wine can be replicated. It's the vintage of whatever the turns, uh, tosses and turns of this world turned out to be. And there's so many infinite variations that it could have taken. And this is the path it took. Hmm. And you're going to be able to appreciate that in a sensual experience. And that is wine. Wow. And speaking of corks, I think we're going to have to put a stop on this one. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, podcast, we're going to be have we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, next one's going to be pretty heavy because we're going to be talking about weights, actually a little bit of lightweight, but we're going to have to tune in for that one. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating and a positive review, and share the Artifact Podcast with everyone you know who would like it. If you've got a podcast, YouTube channel, blog, or something else, and you'd like to have on one or both of us, we'd be thrilled please get in touch. We'll have a Patreon page up soon, but right now, the best way to support the show is to help us get to the people who want to hear it. And of course, we're very happy to hear from you via social media. Use the hashtag Artifact Podcast if you want to write something about us. Links to all our stuff are in the description below. Mm -hmm.